Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses, 4, verses 57 through chapter 10, verse 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds, have, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Christianity began as a movement. We started talking about this last week. Christianity began not as an institutionalized religion. There was nothing institutional really about it. In fact, it was, it was very much a movement that was opposed to the institutions that were already at play. Uh, we've, uh, if you've been a part of our Acts Bible study, you've been uh, walking through this journey with us, seeing how that is the case, how, how at the outset of the Christian movement, we had these other institutions that Christians were kind of like, hold on. Check yourselves, because you've gotten a little bit crazy. The first institution that, uh, that the Christians kind of uh, pushed back against, I guess we could say, was the Roman Empire. Uh, Christianity, at its core, has always been a force to be reckoned with against empires. Why? Because empires get power hungry. And Christianity is very much about humility. And that's very complicated to wrestle with. The second institution that uh, Christians pushed back against was the institutionalized religion of Judaism. Christianity, at its outset, wasn't an institutionalized religion. It was, in fact, a sect of Judaism that had its own criticisms to say, okay, you've gotten way too comfortable in your rules and the way things have always been. It's time for you to open your eyes, open your minds, and consider the possibility that just because this is the way you've always done it doesn't mean that that's the way it always should be. And do you know what happens when a movement starts pushing back against the institutions? Persecution. In our text today, Jesus says, I'm sending you out in the midst, as sheep in the midst of wolves. You might have heard about a wolf in the midst of sheep, and that's dangerous enough. Any shepherd knows that, and I know we have a bunch of people here who are in the shepherding business, right? So, yeah. But a sheep in the midst of wolves, I mean, that's just a massacre. 
there's no way that a sheep gets out of being in the midst of wolves. If a wolf is in the midst of sheep, some of the sheep escape. If it's a sheep in the midst of wolves, it doesn't. Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Persecution came over the, the early church, the early Christian movement, because the movement was pushing back against the institutions. And then something weird happened. A few hundred years later, Christianity became the institution. And that was really cool for a second, because suddenly Christians didn't have to worry. Suddenly everything was okay. We made it. Like this, this was the big goal, right? That, that Christianity would take the world by storm and become a staple in the world. But something happens with institutions. Something happens whenever movements like this peak. We get comfortable and we feel secure and that's really nice. But then we say, we've made it, don't change anything. And you know what happens next? We talked about it last week. We hit stagnation. We hit this point where all of a sudden we just sit. And you know stagnation. If you ever come across a stagnant pond, it's gross. It's, un it's, it's weird. And there are lots of things that are growing in it that you don't want a part of. And it gets gross. And so the institution stagnates and it gets gross and it gets weird and nobody really, you know, it, it, it's, it's comfortable where it is and nobody's really like loving it, but everybody's kind of a part of it. And then after stagnation comes atrophy. And atrophy is perhaps the most devastating thing that ends up happening to a church. Atrophy, we experience this in the human body. If ever the human body gets stagnant and stops moving, it begins to atrophy. In other words, the muscles in the body begin to just wear out. You just, when you stop using them, muscles are like, okay, what's the point of investing all this energy to grow muscles if they're not going to be used? So we'll just forget about them. And whenever we atrophy to that extent, it becomes harder and harder to move. And so we just sit there and waste away. And I'm, I'm afraid that this is kind of what's happened to the church, uh, particularly the church in the West. The church in other parts of the world is, is flourishing. Uh, we can talk more about that some other time. But the church in the West has gotten very very comfortable and has felt this amount of security. And this comfort and security peaked in the late 60s. And since then, we've seen stagnation and we've seen atrophy. And don't get me wrong, there have been exceptions to those rules. There have been uh, movements within Christianity that have overcome that. There have been churches that have moved beyond that. But by and large, the church has been stagnant. The church has been undergoing atrophy. The church is withering away. Fortunately for us, Jesus knows the antidote to atrophy. You probably know the antidote to atrophy too. It's uncomfortable. 
It's movement. When the body has atrophied to a point where the muscles are no longer able to function the way they once did, it may seem like that's a very hopeless place to be, but the body's surprisingly resilient. And fortunately, we have people who are experts in physical therapy who know that even atrophied bodies are able to begin to function properly once again if they just start moving. Simple movements at first. Let's lift that arm, let's put it back down. Lift that leg, put it back down. Start doing the hokey pokey. Turn yourself about. Movement. Slowly but surely, movement begins to build back up those muscles. Slowly but surely, movement becomes the antidote to atrophy. It becomes the antidote to stagnation. If you've ever seen a, a new river flow into a stagnant pond, it just refreshes everything. It's beautiful. Jesus calls his followers to movement over and over and over again. Very rarely does Jesus call his disciples to stay in one place. More often than not, Jesus is instructing his followers to, and he uses this word a lot, go. It's part of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world. Part of our passage here today, go. But those who say that they will go, those who claim to follow Christ and go where Jesus goes, we need to understand what that movement to which Jesus is calling us entails. And that's where we encounter our passage today in, in Luke, uh, starting in chapter 9, moving on to the first verses of chapter 10. We see, first, that this movement to, to which Jesus calls us to is not a comfortable movement. Verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. This sounds like a pretty awesome person. They're willing to go wherever. And Jesus' response, as if knowing this person's heart, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, it's not a comfortable movement. Following Jesus doesn't mean five-star hotels all the time. Following Jesus also doesn't often look like having a house. Jesus was a nomad, always on the move. Staying with friends, sure. It's not a comfortable movement. That's important. Number two, things that we need to understand about this movement to which Jesus has called us is that it is a movement that must take priority. Verses 50, 59 through 60, to another, Jesus said, follow me. But this person said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. These are pretty harsh words, right? Like, I, I, feel, I feel like that can't have been an easy thing for someone to hear. Uh, it's a pretty simple request. Apparently, 
His father's just recently passed away. Please, let me just go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. This is odd. But Jesus here isn't, isn't quite saying, like, you know, that's not something that should happen. Instead, Jesus here is saying, don't have so many excuses. This has to be a priority. This has to be something that matters. This has to be something that sits at the top of our list. And third, the third thing that those of us who claim to follow Jesus, those of us who are called to this movement need to understand is that it is a movement that demands commitment. Verses 61 and 62. Another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, this sounds kind of harsh. It would seem fair that you would be able to say goodbye to uh, your loved ones before you go on a great journey like this. What Jesus is saying here is that this is a movement that demands commitment. In other words, an understanding that once you've started this, you can't look back. We don't back out of this kind of movement because, well, that kind of negates the movement. This has to be a commitment. It's like saying, Lord, I will follow you. Just let me be able to go to Alabama football games on Saturdays and let me be able to uh, go invest in this club over here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And, you know, while we're at it, let's make sure that I can squeeze in a movie night there uh, at least three or four times a week. It's a movement that demands commitment. That says this is a first priority. That recognizes it's not comfortable. And here's the hard part, is that we in the West have found a way to be comfortable in this movement. But we were never called to a life of comfort. We were called to a life of discipleship. We were called to this movement, to move to be on the move, to go. And so, if we are going to pledge ourselves to Christ, if we are going to take on the name Christian, which means one who is like Christ, then we need to understand a little bit more about movement. So, who better to teach us about movement than our very own Isaac Newton? Anybody remember this guy? Yeah, a little bit. He was the guy who had the three laws about motion, so this is going to be kind of helpful. Isaac Newton, believe it or not, was really involved in the church. He has a ton of writings, religious writings. Uh, the, he probably wrote more about faith than he wrote about physics. Yeah, that Isaac Newton. Uh, this is the very Isaac Newton who went to uh, Cambridge, Trinity College at Cambridge, uh, was a fellow there, and was on the path to be ordained in the Anglican church. Yeah, Isaac Newton. <laughs> Imagine what kind of world that would have been. Uh, but before he could graduate, he decided to drop out because if he graduated, then that means he had to be ordained. And he didn't really want that. He had other plans in mind. Still wrote a ton of religious literature. 
uh, but, but wanted his focus to be a little bit elsewhere. So he didn't go through the ordination process, didn't actually finish that fellowship at Trinity College, and, and ended up writing a lot on physics as well as uh, metaphysics and spirituality and religion and the like. Uh, fascinating guy. Uh, also a heretic, which was just a fun fact. Uh, he had, had a lot of uh, kind of out there ideas when it came to religion. Fascinating stuff if you're ever looking for some light reading. But the thing he's most well known for are his three laws of motion. Let's see how much you remember from, uh, from your you know, grade school physics classes. The first law of motion, anybody remember what that one is? Inertia. Just that weird word, right? The first law of motion, see if you can remember this with me, is that an object at rest stays at rest. And an object in motion remains in motion unless acted upon by another object. Yeah? This is the law of inertia. Uh, I like to call it the law of stubbornness because this right here is like the first thing that you have to learn if you're ever going into a church. Is that an object or a people at rest are going to stay at rest. And an object or people in motion are going to stay in motion unless both of these things acted on by an outside force. Oh, that is so real. The law of stubbornness in the church. The law of inertia. The tendency to resist change. My goodness. Churches are incredibly stubborn places. There are no other entities in the world allowed to remain in the, in the 18th century. But the churches keep a lot of the same practices. And there is, there is plenty to be said about the tradition of the church and how, uh, and how it is impactful in our modern era. And nothing to complain about necessarily there, but it is something to be mindful of that we do have a tendency to resist change. And it is important to understand that the only thing that can cause change is force. And I don't mean like forcing someone to change. You could do that. It doesn't work very well. Trust me, I've learned the hard way. Not forcing somebody to change, but force as in the second law of motion, which the second law of motion is essentially an equation. And the most simplified version of this equation is force equals mass times acceleration. Now there's a more complicated version of this formula that's more interesting, but that's the most simplified version. Force equals mass times acceleration. An example of force is when you step on a scale and it reads, you know, 120, right? Yeah, that's about where it stops at for everybody. And it reads that. And what you are experiencing there is a force, which is your mass. Mass is not weight. Weight is a force. Your mass, or the amount that makes you up, times the acceleration, which is gravity. 9.8 meters per second, 32 feet per second. Uh, that, that's the equation that ends up coming up on the scale there. That's an example of force. In the church world, though, I'm not going to spend too much time in physics today. <laughs> in the church world, 
That is uh, that a larger movement or a larger mass, which is the aim of God's love in the world, that more people might come to know this love, that more people might live into this love, a larger mass or more massive movement demands that we need to increase our acceleration or intentionality, and I'll explain why these words correlate, and our force, which is our interactions. Like I said, I'm going to explain more about this. The first is acceleration. Acceleration is a component of this equation, I'm sorry, I'm back to physics, that has both magnitude and direction, which means that there is an amount to acceleration and there is a direction to acceleration. And so in the church world, we call this intentionality. A church can be very unintentional. And when it's unintentional in its actions, there isn't a whole lot of magnitude to it. In other words, there's not, there's not really a lot that's going on. And it's not really directed at anything. It's just kind of like going outward and it dissipates. But acceleration as intentionality is having an amount going in a direction, right? This is intentional ministry in the life of the church. And then force as interaction. That comes into play in the third law of motion. You might remember this one a little bit better than the second one. The third law of motion is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Yes, there is an equal and opposite reaction for every action. Uh, this is often called the law of action and reaction. A more apt name, I think, would be the law of interactions. Because what this law tells us, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, is that force results from interactions. Okay, force results from interactions. When two things interact, they have a force. You know, look to somebody near you and like push against them. You will feel that interaction as a force. <laughs> That's funny to watch y'all pushing each other around. So force is interaction. And so we take a step back just for a second into our equation. That means that if we want to see a more massive movement in Christianity, then we need to increase our acceleration, which is our intentionality, and increase our force, which is our interactions. Intentionality and interactions lead to a more massive movement. That's what we're talking about in all of this. But back to the third law, forces Force results from interactions. But this law has a second thing that's important for us to note as a church. And that is that not everyone is going to be pleased with what we are doing. And that's the hardest thing in the world for, for, for me to consider. Not, every, not everyone is going to be pleased with what we are doing. I'm not a people pleaser. Uh, believe it or not, if you spent some time with me, you might believe that I am a people pleaser. I'm not. I'm a conflict avoider. And sometimes that looks like people pleasing. But really, it's just that I don't want to deal with conflict. It, it freaks me out, horrible anxiety. I have to go spend way too much time talking with my therapist after any kind of conflict. 
I just, I'm a conflict avoider. It's just, it's just my nature. Not a people pleaser. I, I, I can care less about if people are happy with what's going on. That's not entirely true. I kind of care. But it's more about the conflict of it all. Okay, and so, so the very notion that not everybody is going to be pleased with what we are doing is uh, kind of uncomfortable for me because that typically means there's going to be some conflict or some pushback. Or for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Yes, that people are going to be reactionary whenever we start doing something. But this is what Jesus says, right? This is what Jesus says in verse three, uh, chapter 10, verse 3. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. And the wolves are hungry, and the lambs are meek, and they don't really have a whole lot of uh, defensive mechanisms. There's going to be some pushback. So we have these three laws of motion present before us. These three things that we need to consider as a movement to be Christianities. And the first thing out of all of this that we need to understand is that Jesus calls his followers to movement. And it's not an easy call to embrace. We talked about six different things now. The first three things, it's not a comfortable call. It's not a comfortable call. Meaning, if the church is experiencing atrophy or stagnation from its comfort, then it's probably not a church within the movement, the larger movement that is God's love trying to work through the world. The second thing is that it is a priority movement. Meaning that if we invest more of ourselves, our time, energy, resources into other things that aren't this movement, then we probably are not in the movement. Three, it is a movement that requires commitment. Meaning, if we would rather be doing other things or we only show up when it's convenient for us, then we are probably not in the movement. Those are the first three things that we gather from our text in Luke, starting at chapter 9. The next three things we gain from Sir Isaac Newton. The first is that this movement needs to be one that overcomes inertia. We may be resistant to change, but we serve the God of transformation. That's what God is in the business of doing, transformation, which uh, is a uh, synonym for the word change. So this movement must overcome inertia. It must be willing to go through transformation. The second thing that we learn from Sir Isaac Newton is that this is a movement that is concerned with people, which is the mass, and their interactions, uh, which is the force, and their intentions, which is the acceleration. Force equals mass times acceleration, or interactions equal people times intentions. And the third thing we learn from Sir Isaac Newton is that it is a movement that will not fit nicely into a cookie-cutter world. It is a movement that will not fit nicely into a world that, in which people say, this is the way things should be. People are really good at saying, this is the way things should be, and God is much better at it. But for some reason, we listen to ourselves a lot more than we listen to God. And God is trying to unveil to us this movement is well beyond our comfort zone and well worth it. So what do we do now? 
this is where I give you my challenge. And my challenge for us today is to get into the harvest. Chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 70, 70 other people who aren't the first three people that tried to get in on this. 70 other people and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In other words, there's a lot to be done out there and there are few people who are willing to actually invest in it. So my challenge, get into the harvest. The church must overcome this inertia, this stagnation and atrophy with an increasing force of interactions while being prepared for the pushback. John Wesley, in one of his greatest slumps in ministry, one of his hardest times, was once told by his friend Peter Bowler, preach faith until you have faith. Then, because you have faith, you will preach it. In other words, it is a reminder to, if I can borrow an expression from Nike, just do it. That's it. Just do it. Just get involved. Get out there. Do it. I'm so proud of our church jumping into this just do it mentality lately. We've launched our ministry teams and it's been awesome. I'm so proud of our nurture team. Last week uh, we had our, our first nurture team meeting and, and y'all, it was awesome seeing everybody getting pumped to start caring for our church and our members and loving on this church. Our outreach team, which has its first meeting this afternoon, has already been doing some awesome stuff like our school supply drive. We're going to be writing thank you notes to our healthcare workers this afternoon, and we're preparing uh, buckets for Hurricane Ida relief. I'm so proud of this just do it mentality that has shown up in our witness team and the way that our witness team showed up yesterday for our community because we were the only people there. We were the only people there from our community that said, you know what, we love this community. We love Mobile, and we want to continue to love on it. I'm so proud of that just-do-it mentality. We've got to keep it up, though, because we have a tendency toward inertia, to just stop moving. And so it's important to know in all of this that we do not do this alone. And we're going to talk more about that next week, and I'm really excited for next week's message. Uh, we don't do this alone. Jesus sent 70 people ahead of himself. That's awesome. We don't do this alone. So if I'm saying anything today, it's let us learn a little something from Sir Isaac Newton, not from his theology so much as his physics. Let us embrace the call of Christ to go to get involved in this movement, and let us get wrapped up in this movement. And let us pray.